Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're in the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans 10. Those of you not familiar with Scripture, Romans is near the back of the Bible. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, you'll find the book of Romans. And that's where we are camping out today in Romans chapter 10. Paul has been talking about the nature of faith and particularly how faith is a different way to approach God than the way of works. And he continues that conversation today in chapter 10, starting in verse 11, actually, as I'll read that to you. Listen carefully to the word of God. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him, that is Christ, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So for a time, I wasn't sure it was going to happen. You see, it's that time of year for me and uh, our yard at the Faulkner home. For those of you who know me, you know that I like my yard to look good. I do struggle with yard righteousness at times, and this year has been a struggle with that. For years, I have worked a formula to make sure the yard is lush and rich and full in the spring. And I'll give you the formula. Here it is. In September, October, along with my neighbors, we rent an aerator and I aerate the yard. I tear it up really well. And then uh, I oversee the yard. I fertilize it. We put lime down, among other things. And later on, we'll put some crabgrass preventer. And by November, I normally see little sprouts of, of, of grass that start to come up. And as the winter goes on, the grass doesn't really grow on the top end, but it's growing down beneath where you can't see it as well. And so when it comes out in the spring, it's really ready to go in extraordinary ways. But here's the thing. This past fall, two things happened. I planted late in the season. And yes, that awful winter came early. And a result, as a result, in November, I didn't see the little sprouts. And for a time, I wasn't sure the grass was going to come up at all. And I started to panic a little, like, what's my yard going to look like in the spring? All these patches, will it look cruddy? And the winter kept going and going and going and going, and it wouldn't get warm enough. And I was really concerned And yet in my mind, I kept thinking about what might be going on underneath the surface, what I couldn't see happening with the root systems of the grass we had planted. And the great news is that when spring finally came, (laughs) 
The grass came out, and it was lush, it was green, it was rich and full. It was better than I had ever thought it might be. Well, for the last few weeks in Romans 10, we've been talking about the value of living by faith. And that's exactly what hoping your grass will grow over time is a little bit like. Hoping that grass will come up in due time is a matter of faith, even as you've planted and watered and waited. And Paul's been talking about the issue of faith throughout our text uh, in these chapters of Romans, uh, really from Romans 1 on, he keeps hitting the issue of faith and particularly justification by faith alone. That is, that we are set right before God, not by anything we do, but by trusting in what Christ alone can do in our lives. Yet you've got to admit, the struggle of living by faith is very real, isn't it? It's very hard. It was real for the Jews in Old Testament times as well as even in Jesus' time in the New Testament who found it very hard to believe that their great Savior was not a success story but was a poor itinerant preacher who ended up being crucified by the Jews. He was a suffering king, not the shiny, happy, successful hero that we in our world even today want. But lest we give the Jews a hard time living by faith in that same Christ is hard for us in this time too. Living by faith in someone or something you cannot see is hard when it comes to Christ and His salvation. So what Paul is doing in our text today, as he did last week, is he is unfolding for us the nature of faith. The nature of what it means to have faith in Christ. And there are three aspects to that in our text today of what faith is about. Now, first is uh, he's, he's going to tell us what faith leads to. Then how faith happens, uh, the process, if you will, of faith. And finally, what we'll, we'll get into what true faith is. What true faith in Jesus Christ really looks like. So let's start in our first verses by reviewing the context in which Paul is talking about faith. And this is really important in Christianity to understand. We start with God when we talk about faith. And here's a key aspect of God that our text has been talking about. God is utterly righteous. He is the way things are supposed to be. And everything he touches is the way it's supposed to be. Only God is righteous. And the reason I say that is because he only does relationship with the righteous. That is, in order to be in relationship with him, you have to be perfectly righteous. You have to be the way you're supposed to be in his eyes and according to his law. What, of course, is the problem with this? Well, we in Christianity believe that, as Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. Nobody in this room, and including and especially me, is truly righteous. We all have this nagging sense inside of us, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. But here's the problem. God requires that we be absolutely righteous in order to be in relationship with Him. So if we're supposed to be absolutely righteous, to be in relationship with Him, and yet we aren't righteous, and as Romans 3 also says, we all fall short of the glory of God... 
What do we do? The answer is not in what do we do. The answer is in what God has done. God, in time and space 2,000 years ago, sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to be the righteous one for us, the Messiah that every person is looking for in their life in some shape, form, or fashion. Jesus was the one who lived the law perfectly. Jesus was the one who died on a cross to take on the curse of the law, of the way things are not supposed to be in us, upon himself. Jesus bled and died as the righteous one, the spotless Lamb of God who never sinned, so that we also might have hope after death. He was resurrected. He was resurrected from the dead to overcome the curse that comes with unrighteousness within us. He did it all for us and for his glory. That's what the gospel tells us about righteousness. And the wonder of this is that there is one thing we bring to the table, one thing, the, one way we respond to receive this grace of Christ's righteousness. It's faith. Faith. Faith by its very nature says, I trust in another, not myself. I trust in Christ alone, not myself, for my salvation. And so as a result, Romans 10 says, if you want to truly be righteous by faith and not by your mere efforts, if you believe in your heart or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not your works that gets you in with God. It's not your efforts even for God after you become a Christian. You must rely on Christ and his righteousness to cover you always. In faith. This is the important piece of the gospel that we often forget and that Paul is driving home by talking about faith. But here's the thing in our time, we talk a lot about faith. You just got to believe. You got to believe. Just have faith. Don't we tell ourselves that even across the culture? I mean, even George Michael in the 80s, and I'm dating myself, had said, You got to have faith, faith, faith. The key question is, faith in who? Faith in what? And the reason we bring this up is because very often we're not clear on who we're exactly trusting in. Whether it be ourselves, another God, even people and things in our lives. But the whole point of Christianity is we're called to trust in one Christ alone. The Jesus of history. Who lived, bled, died, and was resurrected and ascended to heaven for us. When you and I trust in him and receive his righteousness, not our own, there are some aspects to faith that show up in our living. And these first ones show up in verse 11. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame but there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You hear that language of will be or will not be? These are promises to us that if you trust in Christ and receive his righteousness and not depend on your own, you will get three blessings, three promises 
of what you get. I mean, just these first verses, he says, first, if you believe in Christ, you will not be put to shame. Let me put it another way. You will be honored if you trust in Christ. And the reason is when we trust in Christ for our salvation alone, God gives us his righteous, Christ's righteousness to cover up while Christ takes our sin upon himself. So that when God looks at us, it's just as if we'd never sinned and we're righteous as Christ because we have Christ's righteousness covering us. This is a beautiful truth of how we live. Believers will not be exposed on the last day when Jesus comes back to judge us for sin. Instead, we'll be honored. Come, blessed of my Father, prepared for you from the foundations of the world. That's what Jesus will say. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's a second thing he says in our text that will be a blessing of what's to come in faith. We will experience the riches of God. They are bestowed upon us as Christians. Now, that will come in this life, uh, and it will come in this life in the Holy Spirit. Some of the material blessings we have, all the material blessings we have, come from Christ himself. But there will be so much more waiting for us in heaven. Eternal blessings of of, of enjoying God in eternity in a new heavens and a new earth with a new body one day when Jesus comes back. That's the eternal blessings and riches that we will encounter and it promised to us. Now, we've thought about that before, but I was reading John Murray on this this week, and he said an amazing thing about this idea of bestowing riches that's in this text. He has a twist, and he says the reason why, the reason, way we should read this text, rather, is that faith is the way that we receive the riches of God in our lives, and that God himself receives us. In other words, Jesus once and for all died for our sin, but God ongoing has more grace to offer us in this life. It's not just a one-time thing. That he is bestowing his grace through our faith in him as an ongoing aspect of living for him. Remember Luke? Luke says it is important to be rich toward God. Well, here's the thing. God is first rich towards you and me. When you blow it in Christ, when you blow it even without Christ, if you come to Christ, God is inclined to forgive you. He wants to love you. He wants to give to you. He's not holding out. And there are many times we tend to think that about God. He's holding out on me because I haven't performed well enough. But as John Murray says, God is inclined to love us and give to us in rich ways. The result of this is the promise that shows up in our text over and again. You will be saved. You will be saved. It says it all over the place. You will be saved. In other words, there's a promise that not only will you be saved in justification by God declaring us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, but one day you will, be, you, you will enjoy salvation finally and fully in God's presence in eternity. We are saved by grace, and grace goes all the way through in our justification, our sanctification, even our glorification. That's what Paul is talking about in these texts.
Now, let me ask you, who here is eligible for these blessings that Paul is talking about here? Who? Who are the people that get to enjoy the riches of God, eternity, salvation, all these extraordinary promises that come in Scripture? Well, the answer shows up in our verse here. In verse uh, 12, he says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. What does that mean? Jews and Greeks were, if you will, the religious and the irreligious. That's the way in many ways uh, you can understand Jew and Greek. Not only the entire world, every man from every tongue, tribe, and nation, but also the religious and the irreligious. And what's beautiful about this that I thought about this week is those of us here who have really done some really dumb things, some dark things that some people don't know about, and you're not going to tell anybody. Christ is ready to bestow riches upon you. His riches of forgiveness and kindness and grace. God is big enough to handle that in Christ. But what about those of us who are religious? Like, say, Paul or Peter. Who have tried really hard to live for God for X years, maybe even decades in our lives. But we keep falling short. And we know in our hearts, man, I am not pulling it off for God today. I haven't had enough quiet times. I'm not praying hard enough. I'm not reaching out to people enough. I'm not doing enough for God. What is the gospel for you? The gospel is God's grace is bestowed upon you too. Now. That God's forgiveness is still applicable now. You're not a lost cause in your brokenness. In fact, I would submit to you that the real way to enjoy Christ, the real way to enjoy praying and reading the Bible and reaching out and serving even in church is not mere duty. It's actually receiving the bestowing of God's grace upon you. And so sitting with that and enjoying it and marinating in God's grace towards you, that then you're so loved, you're like, wow, how do I love back? This is the mistake many of us religious people are. We go to works too quickly, mere duty without faith, without going to Christ and enjoying him and letting him change us and transform us from the inside out in how we live. Christ comes for Jew and for Greek, the religious, the irreligious, and he's done it so that we might enjoy him. Now, how does all this fate come about? How does this happen in people's lives? Well, our next verses tell us the actual process of how faith gets stirred up in our lives, starting in verse 14. He says, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? What is the dominant word there? How? How does this happen? What's the process? God has actually designed a process so that we might have faith and even more faith in our lives. So here's the question. How do people call on the Lord by faith? Is it magic? Is it magically happen that someone becomes a Christian overnight? No, the answer is it's not magic. It's mission. It's mission. Christ's mission working through us is the practical process 
that God has chosen and how we get the how of the gospel out. I mean, he goes backwards here. I mean, he starts with the end goal that people call on the Lord in faith. Then he goes that 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 comes from belief from the inside out. And then that comes from people hearing the gospel in the word of God. In the, uh, and then that comes from preaching. And just to be clear, preaching isn't in scripture just preachers like me who are who are compensated to stand and teach on a regular basis and worship or in other venues, preachers include all of you. People who communicate about Christ around the water bottle at work, in the front yard of your neighbor, in, in the midst of uh, experiencing activities like next weekend when we're going to shoot each other as guys in paintball. Somehow the gospel is communicated there. I'm going to have to think about that. How are we going to shoot each other? Jesus loves you, man. That preaching that he talks about in our text comes from sent preachers. And that begs the question, who are the sent preachers? Well, God has not chosen just magic for people for uh, the faith to go out and the gospel to be preached. He's chosen us. He has chosen us to be the communicators of the gospel. In other words, this text kind of expands the Great Commission to go in all the world and make disciples. We are God's voice box to the world. We are the messengers telling the great news of Christ. We are living parables of the gospel. And how we live our lives in front of our families and friends and neighbors so that people might see and hear the gospel lived out in our lives. Why do I say this? Well, because people like us in Presbyterian and Reformed circles sometimes so emphasize the sovereignty of God in people's salvation that we forget that while that's first, always, there is also human responsibility in the communication of the gospel. We forget to gossip as Christians. That's right, gossip. Gossip the gospel to our neighbors and friends and family. William Carey is uh, known as a father of modern missions. He's from England back in the 18th century. And when he first tried to convince his fellow Christians and Baptists that they needed to go to other nations and tell people about Christ. It is reported that one man stood up and said, I quote the following, young man, sit down when God pleases to, uh, uh, to convert the lost. He will do it without our help. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Bible teaches God is absolutely sovereign over his gospel going out, but he has chosen the means and instruments of, of us for that gospel to go out. Apparently this man missed the human responsibility piece of how the gospel goes forward. And this text that we're looking at is just kind of a great commission central for that. I mean, think about it. When Jesus said the great commission... Before he said it, he said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. I mean, that's big stuff. Who would say that in the world today? And you're thinking he's going to do something pretty extraordinary, especially after all the miracles and stuff and even being resurrected. 
You think, okay, here it comes. What's he going to do? And then he says, you go and make disciples. I empower you through the power of the Holy Spirit to go and tell about me and be my witnesses in the world. He sends you to glory in Christ and to tell the world about him. And do you know what will happen when you tell people about Christ? They will consider your feet beautiful. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's hard to believe when we're used to seeing feet. But here's what it says in our text here. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Paul quotes Isaiah 52, which is all about how God's people lived in exile. And just like Lad spoke earlier, when they lived in exile, they were stressed out. They were longing for home. They were away from home. They knew that they didn't know if their masters would one day bring down the, the hammer on them. They were stressed out. Now, imagine living in that state for about 70 years. Wouldn't you be longing for a good word, an encouraging word, a word that salvation is coming and it's not of you, you you can't fix it, somebody has to come and save you? Well, folks, your neighbors and friends and family, my neighbors and friends and family are waiting for that word and probably more are waiting than you realize. They are in exile outside the community of God's power. And God calls to go out and tell them the good news, that they may have hope. God has chosen us to be the messengers. And oh yeah, we're messy messengers, but messengers nonetheless. Now Paul is no dummy. He knows when we tell people about Christ, if we actually take a risk and communicate and gossip the gospel, some people will be resistant. Look at verse 16 of our text. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Some people are hard and resistant to the gospel. We're going to talk more about that next week and the kind of good stuff from here in Romans on how uh, the Jews didn't respond well to the gospel. But that brings up a bigger question for you and for me. What does it mean to believe? What is true belief? What are we shooting for in true faith? Well, faith in Scripture is often described as believing in Christ, resting and receiving uh, Christ, coming to Christ, looking to Christ, uh, hoping in Christ, trusting in Christ, even calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many in in our Christianized culture will say, yeah, I believe. I believe. But what does real faith look like? Well, true saving faith has really several key elements to it. I'm going to highlight three major ones. And the first is this. Real faith starts with God. And I mean it this way. God's the one who stirs it up inside of us. John 3 says that uh, the wind blows where it may. The Holy Spirit works among people in his own unique way. Ephesians 2 says you have been saved by grace through faith And this is not of yourselves so that no one would boast. What is he talking about? This is not of yourselves. Your faith. Faith is a gift, in other words. God has to give it to us and begin that work in our hearts. But there is a second aspect of faith, and that's our responsible receiving of Christ. 
In fact, true faith involves the whole person in believing. For example, intellectual certainty. You use your mind, and these are all kind of uh, put together, but you use your mind to believe the truth. That's often called notitia faith. In other words, you actually believe Jesus was a historic person who came, who died, and was resurrected. That's intellectual aspect of faith. There's also emotional buy-in of faith. The actual trusting that goes on, that's called a sensus faith. That's where you personally own and you're emotionally engaged in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And then there's the volitional choice for Christ. That's called fiducia. The way we choose Christ in our works. And let me be clear. Real faith is not just head knowledge where you know all the right answers. It is not just an emotional experience you had 15 years ago with God. It is not just actively choosing. It is all of that together. Engaging God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every part of who you are in your soul. In other words, real faith means you're all in with Jesus. All in. Now, we're all messy in that. Believe me, we don't all have exactly perfect thoughts about Jesus. We don't have, we're not emotionally uh, tied in all the time, nor are we uh, enabled uh, in making choices for Christ. But real faith has every element of that engaged with God. All of these together make true faith. Finally, all of this is born of one thing the gospel. The gospel. You know that the grounds of our salvation is never us or our works. It's Christ alone. That's the grounds of our salvation. But what is the ground of faith? Where does faith start? And the answer is the word of God. The gospel going out. As it says in our text, when God speaks, it changes us. It moves us. It transforms us. God's word speaking is the word that gives us faith in Christ. It stirs us up. Look, the Bible talks about church. The Bible talks about experiencing God. It talks about how to handle your troubles. But the center point of faith is Christ. The word of Christ. The rhema of Christ, as it says in the Greek here. Well, why is that? Well, Christ is the hero we always wanted. He's the one we all search for and and long for in the movies when we watch him. Christ is the God-man who bridges the gap between us and our unrighteousness and God the Father and His righteousness. And this is key. His righteousness is that thing that gets us into heaven and gets us into a living relationship with Him right now. Jesus never sinned as the spotless lamb. He lived that perfect life for us. And his righteousness, when we trust in him for our salvation, is imputed to us. It is placed on us as an alien righteousness that's not of our own making, but is counted towards us. This Christ is the one who bled for your sin and for mine. That blood of Christ that cleanses us once and for all. 
so that he, you can hear him say, as he said to so many in the, in the Gospels, you are forgiven, neither do I condemn you. You are mine. Faith comes by dwelling on Jesus in the countless dimensions of who he is and what he does for us. So then, I have given you a great theology lesson in faith. Now let me ask you, what's that got to do with us here today? If you're not a Christian, my question to you is this. What do you believe in or who do you believe in? Because everyone believes in something. Everyone trusts in something. Everyone goes to something or someone for their life, their hope, their future. Christianity calls us to examine what the objects of our faith are. Is it yourself? Are you really that big to handle life and all that it throws at you? Is it money, career, is it even people in your life, in your life that, who seem to have a unique power over you where you can't even say no to them? Faith is where you step out of that and you're all in with Jesus. You are all in with him. What does that look like? Well, there's a story about a man and his son during World War II in England and many of you know that London and other cities were bombed relentlessly by the Germans in England. And there's a story that uh, this man was in his home and it was bombed along with another one. And he got his son out, was holding him by the hand, bombs and fire going off everywhere. It was really violent and bad. This boy, of course, was frightened and the father is looking for a place to hide. And honestly, the best places to hide during the blitz of World War II was in a hole, a hole made by a bomb. So the man sees the hole and knows he can hide there. So what does he do? He jumps in and it's dark. All you can see is fire and flames everywhere. It's dark at night. And he says, son, jump in with me. And the boy says, I can't see you. I am too afraid. But you know what the father said to him? He said, but I see you jump. The real art of trusting in Christ is jumping knowing that God sees you and he'll catch you. That he's big enough to handle your sin, your darkness, to cleanse you, to make you a new creation. I urge you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, ask, who are you following? Because you're following something. You're following someone. And I ask you, will that someone or something die for you and love you and be there in the hole and say, jump, I got you? Second, some of you here are believers. And as believers, you have struggled with faith. You wonder if you're a Christian at times because of the way you perform in your life. But I want to tell you something. Faith is just as crucial for you as a Christian. Jerry Bridges sums up our struggle. He says that very often our model for becoming Christians is this. I trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins so that I can come into the kingdom. But once I get in the kingdom, I've got to work to make him happy. And then when I get to heaven, when I die, then I'll be back in by grace and everything's good. But like Jerry Bridges rightly says, that's all messed up. 
It's not grace, then works, then grace. It is grace, grace, grace. Faith, faith, faith. To be sure, as Christians we are, to be holy, sanctified, live in different ways. However, how do you live that different way? By trying really hard on your own effort? No. It's by faith in Christ. You are sanctified by faith, uh, by grace through faith. You grow by looking on the beauties of Christ and dwelling on what he's done for you every day. And that will change you. It will transform you. Our business when we live by works, even as Christians, is we're trying to build that record for ourselves. So God will say, okay, you're good. Come on in. You're fine. But I'm here to tell you, when you receive Christ by faith, his righteousness is your record. You don't have to build a record. Christ's righteousness becomes your hope. So when you want to do something for God and his glory, you don't say, okay, I'm going to try really hard and do it. No, you go to Christ first and think, ah, Jesus, you did this first for me. I can rest in that. Now instruct me on how I can lead, follow you, and love you and obey you. You see the difference between that and just tell me what to do, Jesus? Faith is a different way to live. Therefore, our prayer as Christians is this. When we're struggling, we say, Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Just like the Father who is working with his son in Jesus in Mark chapter 9. Help me in my unbelief. Your faith will come by hearing the gospel, dwelling on the gospel, getting into the word. That's why you've got to dream. You've got to pursue being in God's word and listening to the gospel, even telling it to each other. Yesterday, I spent part of my day with a young woman in a psych ward in a hospital in the Charlotte area. This woman was at the end of her rope. And I realized walking in, I have nothing to offer. Especially in myself. But I do have Christ. I spent it over an hour just telling her about Christ. She was a different person by the time I left. It wasn't because of me. I was the instrument. I was just pointing her to Christ. Wherever you are today, Jesus calls you to dwell on him, not yourself and your works. And to kind of finally conclude, I'd tell you this. Um, There is an illustration of the problem we struggle with in unbelief that shows up in an animal. Have you ever heard of the African impala? This animal is an extraordinary animal. It can jump a height of 10 feet. It can cover 30 feet in one jump when it's really running fast. It's a pretty extraordinary animal. Yet here's the thing. These incredible jumpers can be kept in a zoo with a three-foot wall as an enclosure around them. They won't jump out. You know why? They won't jump if they cannot see where they land. 
Today, I think too many of us are walking by sight and not by faith. We're looking for where we're going to land. Here's what I'd tell you. Give it up. Jump. Jump over the wall when you don't see where you're going to land. Jump, if you want to use the other illustration, into a hole because the Father is waiting. Trust in Christ alone by faith. He saved you before. He'll save you for the first time. He'll save you again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we keep coming to you to save us, and yet we want to get off the wagon and try and save ourselves. Help us, Lord. Help us to want to know the gospel, that we are loved, and that we can be saved by your grand power and ability. Forgive us, Lord, when we go uh, trying to look where we'll leap, when all we need to do is jump into your arms. Help us today to entrust ourselves to you because there is no God who would love us by dying, by being resurrected, by even caring for us and bestowing on us riches and receiving us again and again and again. There is no God like this. And that is why we worship you alone, O Christ. Hear our prayer in Christ alone we pray. Amen. Please stand with us. All who are poor and powerless, feel free to join in and sing hallelujah with us. And all the poor and powerless And all the lost and lonely And all the thieves will come confess And know that you are holy Know that you are holy, and all will sing out hallelujah, and we will cry out the hearts who are content, and all who feel unworthy, and all who hurt with nothing left, we know that you are holy. Sing out hallelujah and we Scream it from the mountains 
team and the elders come forward and uh, if you'd like to pray with us we'd love to pray and talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus even in the struggle of having faith in him and uh, let me encourage you uh, God has called us to a unique life of following him by faith it is never clear where he's going to take you next and that's because he wants you to focus on him and so I leave you with our benediction from our friend Dick Woodward up in Williamsburg, Virginia, who said this very thing as a reminder to all of us that he's our hope. Christ is. I'm not, but he is. And I am in him and he is in me. I can't, but he can. And I am in him and he is in me. I didn't, but he did. And I am in him and he is in me. I don't want to, but he wants to. And I am in him. And he is in me. Go in that hope. Shout it. Go on and scream it from the mountain. Go on and tell it.